could join us for episode 80 of Fatalist on this National Podcasting Day. My name is Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne. And uh, we overcame our Skype problems, finally. Mine, you, man. It was cr- Skype problems, boot-up problems. They're just This has got to be one of the most snake-bitten podcasts we've ever attempted to do. Though, as you yeah, pointed you- out, some of the early ones were worse than this, but still. Yeah, but you'd think on National Podcasting Day, everything would go smoothly, but alas, no. Here we are, National Podcasting Day, right? Uh, anyway, we're uh, we're good to go now. And, you know, before we go too much further, we'd love to hear from you guys via email at fatalistpodcast at gmail.com or go to the website, fatalistpodbean.com. You can leave a voicemail via the SpeakPipe tab or just record your own audio clip and send the MP3 as an attachment. But... Tonight, we're here to discuss Season 1, Episode 5 of James Cameron's cyberpunk series, Dark Angel, starring Jessica Alba and Michael Weatherly. And to give you a few takes on some other things, um, before we go too far, though, I, I you know, I think we've got a really good, and actually, to be honest, I think most of our Do We Cares have been pretty good, and we've done a pretty good job of kink- keeping them succinct. But were tonight- you about to say kinking them? I, what's, I was. What's, what's going on over there, Doctor Freud? Well, anyway, <laughs> it's <laughs> all right, the so voice. Tonight, I Wayne. know it happens. It happens to ladies all the time, Dave. Don't uh, be, uh, don't be ashamed. All right. Well, anyway, tonight, Wayne, <laughs> do we care that Marvel and DC Comics have taken the attitude that more is more, and have begun this oversaturation of the television airwaves? I mean, it just seems too much. I agree that it does uh, seem like a lot because, you know, you've got the big guys out there, right? It's like Superman, Batman, Avengers, um, you know, these, okay, these but those are all with, movies. No, but also television shows, right? At least at one point or another. I mean, Smallville is, Smallville's not still out there, right? They're still not making Smallville. But we've had Smallville. Right, but here's what we've, we've got, got right now. It's the Shields. For Marvel, we've got, like you said, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And then in 2015, we've already got, ready to go, Agent Carter, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Defenders. Now, you're probably more familiar with most of them than I am. I mean, certainly I know Agent Carter and Iron Fist, but that's just Marvel. No, and it's, it's a lot. And the thing, yeah, we're, we're getting like kind of the second tier heroes is kind of what I was saying. So it's like, you know, bound to be, first of all, more obscure. So you're not going to get that automatic fan base. Like, you know, when you, when you come out of the show like Gotham, there's a buttload of people who like Batman, right? So you're, you've got yeah. the automatic, but you get to these, some of these like second tier heroes. Well, yeah, they have obviously a lot of people who read the, the comics, right? That's you know, why they're there in the first place, but it's not as many. You're not guaranteed that hit. Right. Now, now that was just Marvel. DC currently has Arrow. You mentioned Gotham. We've got Flash coming up. Constantine, which is going to premiere in October on NBC. iZombie, which is going to be on the CW also in 2015. Preacher, 2015 on AMC. And Supergirl, I think I mentioned that last week, has just been greenlit to be on CBS. You did so, not you mention know, Bob, that. I had no idea no, about I, that. Maybe you did on, uh, on the Liberate. I mean, so that's like 14 shows that will be on by 2015. And 
you know, whether or not there's an audience for each one, uh, you know, like you mentioned that, that there's some of the minor superheroes now, but look, even you and I, which are, you know, who are huge genre fans, I mean, we've got a limited amount of time. I, I just can't, right. I, I won't even be able to probably even try some, some of them. Well, anyway, I guess we will see. We'll certainly keep tabs on the shows as they air. I mean, no one can deny the preponderance of superheroes in the box office on the big and small screen, both. Um, and I think we were talking about this today. I think one thing it speaks to is that before, whenever you did a superhero show, inevitably it would really look like crap. You know, you'd, you'd say Superman is flying in a blue screen. I can totally tell. He doesn't really look like he's flying. He looks like he's sitting on top of a table with his arms out in front of him or something like that. But yep. now television has the special effect capability to make it believable. So you can bring in these superheroes. You can bring in the Flash and actually people will believe it's a guy running super fast and get that feeling from the special effects. So there's one thing. But I also think it's, you know, I don't know, maybe it's this 21st century desperate need for like what we see as pure heroes, right? Like we get these yeah. guys and we can admire them and they're not fallen people. Uh, they're not, you know, there's no really, there. I mean, there's some ambiguity about them. But basically, like Arrow, right? Oliver is always going to be good. He might do some things that are questionable, but he's always, you know, we're always going to trust that he does things for the right reason and that he's a good person, right? And we don't get that ambiguity. That lack of ambiguity we don't get in our real lives. Like we look at what the, the world is like and what our country is involved in, and we can't even really believe in our own country anymore. And what heroes do we have? Oh, I like you know sports figures. Oh, but Ray Rice punches his wife out in a in a elevator. You know, so I think there's this you know kind of desperation, this desperate need. It seems like in America today that you know goes right into feeds right into the the uh, popularity of these superhero movies. Yeah, no, no question. And, and, you know, you mentioned Arrow, which I think for me is currently my, by far my favorite in this, uh, you know, subgenre. But l like you said, even with Oliver, I mean, at the beginning, he was actually killing. Now, granted, he was killing bad guys. Right. That's but, what I'm saying. You know, like, yeah, he's killing. But, oh, but they're bad guys. So it's OK. Right. Right. But even that he's changed. Well, anyway, like we said, we'll, we'll certainly keep uh, an eye on the superheroes, which are principally coming from DC and Marvel. So just a little bit of sci-fi news, and I think you're going to like this one also. Uh, the BBC has finally confirmed the list of guest stars for this year's upcoming Doctor Who Christmas special. Shaun of the Dead's Nick Frost nice. will appear in a guest starring role and will be joined by Nathan McMullen from The Misfits, Michael Troughton from Breathless, who happens to be the son of the second and Doctor, Patrick, Patrick Troughton. Michael's brother David also guest starred in Doctor Who a few years back in the Russell T. Davies penned episode Midnight. Now, the BBC's official press release, production on 2014's Doctor Who Christmas special has begun with a host of British acting talent set to appear. The Christmas special, a cracker of a highlight in the festive season schedule, will air this Christmas on BBC One and promises to be an action-packed, unmissable adventure. Well, when is it? Yeah, really? Exactly. It's always awesome. Right. Right. No, um, last year's was not a no, it, it, last year's was not as universally loved as past ones have been. Well, that may be, but Matt still. Smith. Yeah, I like it though. Anyway, Stephen Moffat, lead writer and executive producer, says Frost at Christmas. It just makes it sense. Makes sense. 
I worked with Nick on the Tintin movie many years ago, and it's a real pleasure to lure him back to television for a ride on the TARDIS. And as we said, the Doctor Who Christmas special will air on BBC One. It will be written by Stephen Moffat, directed by Paul Wimshurst, who did Strike Back and Combat Kids. And it's going to be shot in Cardiff at BBC Wales, Roth Lock Studios. So can't wait. Uh, we've got a bunch more episodes to go before the Christmas special, however. And right. uh, I, know we're, I know we're both liking what we're watching. Loving it. Loving this season. So this t- yeah. thinking about the Christmas episode, there is a, a bit of that because, you know, I, th- I think I've said it here before, I uh, upgraded my cable package, which actually meant losing BBC America as irony of ironies. Um, so I've been getting Doctor Who via Amazon. So this will be like the first year that I haven't like this almost like this Christmas tradition. Like we go to my parents during the day, I come home and I watch the Doctor Who episode at night when we get back from my parents. And now I'm going to have to wait till the next day. So... It's not a big deal, but it's a little sad. Yeah, that's too bad. There's not going to be some kind of live streaming somewhere. No, no, like what they should. That should be like special exception with the Christmas episode that they the Amazon releases at this the very same time that it's uh, that it's plays at least Eastern time. You know. Yeah. Oh, Toss yeah. me a bone here, people. Right. Yeah. No question. Hey, it's Christmas. Come exactly. On. That's what I'm saying. You know. All right. Well, we did get a piece of listener email, and we're here, we heard from Dan Mikowski again, who says, Greetings. First, I'd like to say I've been enjoying your coverage of Dark Angel. However, there's one issue that I must take issue with, and that is the use of voiceovers. I haven't listened to your podcast long enough to fully understand your anti-voiceover stance, and I think that's Wayne. But I think that it's an appropriate and effective technique when telling a story through a character's perspective, like Dexter, Veronica Mars, or Dead Like Me. And since Dark Angel is essentially Max's story, I think something is added by giving it her voice and personalizing it. Secondly, a few weeks ago, you were questioning whether Dollhouse was cyberpunk. And while I won't say that the series as a whole was cyberpunk, as I understand it, I would agree that the last story arc of season two was. There are hints in season one that that is the direction the show was going, but it doesn't actually go there until the second half of season two, in my opinion. And regards, Dan. Now, last things first, um, I, I guess he's referring to Epitaph 1 and Epitaph 2, right? The the, the two that take place in the future. Well, almost all of like the, the last couple episodes of season two all take place in the future. Like they went there, I can't remember how many in, but there was quite a few episodes left. It wasn't just the last one. Okay. Um, yeah, I may have to do a rewatch on Dollhouse. You do, but, obviously, uh, you do. Yeah, now no, so I, as far I, as- I absolutely, I, I agree with that. That's what I said. I, I wasn't saying the whole of Dollhouse because I it, it wasn't. I was just saying that that part where they went into the future was was definitely cyberpunk. Yeah. So, all right. Now, as far as the voiceovers go, that that's more your uh, thing than than mine. I'm okay with it. Well, see, I'm not saying that voiceovers unilaterally are bad i just for the most part i appreciate and i know it's me personally so i'm not speaking for anyone i i like it when directors get that information to us via more naturalistic methods by more uh through visual images rather than a voiceover which as i said is somewhat unnatural and somewhat pulls you out of the story at least for a little bit now granted uh, there's a lot of things I have, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off was an awesome movie. And not only used a voiceover, but had a character looking right into the camera 
and speaking directly to the camera, which is the most unnatural thing ever. But it was, it was, it was what, hilarious. What's that called? Breaking the fourth right. wall, I think. Yeah. So, you know, used effectively. I really, when I watched the very beginning of Dark Angel, and it started with little kids and a voiceover, it just seemed to me so cheesy and trite and unimaginative. Now, Grid, it redeemed itself, right? The rest of the episode was awesome. I really liked Dark Angel. But just to start off like it did, like, I, seriously, I almost, if, if I were watching it, like, just watching it on regular television, I might have stopped. I might just said, uh, I don't, this, this seems like a cheesy, like every other action show I've ever seen. So now, did you watch Dexter? I have not seen Dexter. Okay. I mean, because, you know, he mentions Dexter, Veronica Mars, dead like me. Uh, I, I've seen, I, I certainly haven't seen all of Dexter, but I've seen probably, oh, at least 20, 25 episodes of it. And, and the voiceover there is, is pretty pronounced and, and, and it's, you know, it's his story and it's his voice. Um, Dead Like Me, I've seen a fair number of those. Same thing. Our friend Diane is a huge Veronica Mars fan. Yeah. I've never seen it at all, no. but I assume, again, it's the same thing there. Right. So uh, you know, Skillfully used, it can be a, an effective narrative device, but I think overused, it's... Well, if, if you, a show makes it part of it... Now, see, I'm not even sure that Dark Angel really makes it part of its its culture, you know? Like, we get voiceovers every now and then, but it's not like it starts off with a voiceover every single episode, right? Right, right, true. So, true. Um, it, so I don't know. I mean, jury's still out as far as it, for the most part, I'm opposed to voiceovers. I like to see it being done otherwise. But I'm not saying that it's it's awful. And I, I, I categorically dislike some just because it, it has a voiceover. I mean, I said, I, you know, I, I give everything a benefit of the doubt. And like I said, I, I love Dark Angel. So. Yeah, so uh, we'll have to start paying attention. Fair, I guess I, enough, I, I yeah, just I, I, that's your point, though. All right. Well, listen. Why don't we talk about the episode? And this was entitled "Cream," which stands for "Cash Rules Everything Around Me." And I got to tell you, Wayne. I, you know, as much as I love the show and, and everything about it, the I, the titles are kind of the weak link. You know, next week, as we'll we'll say. Four one one on the DL and <laughs> crushed and I, I you know, you know I, I just figured you know something just occurred to me I think as I was watching this why you seem so taken with all the lingo and I don't okay because I this I was speaking this lingo ah so like I didn't notice it you know I was just like because it's just like so I'm like oh taste and I think like what like what the dealio and four one one and all this stuff I'm like oh. This this is this is like kind of turn of the century type. This is how like you know like yeah. the kids, especially the kids I was teaching at the time, were talking, and even my friends and I were using these terms at the time. So, um, I think I think it's kind of typical late nineties, early aughts slang. So so yeah. I didn't it, it didn't strike me as being strange. I guess yeah. So uh, but I'm used to it. Uh, but anyway, was that this nice episode way of saying you're old. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. This episode aired on Halloween night, October 31st, 2000, written by David Zabel, who uh, has written five episodes of Dark Angel. Obviously, we haven't seen them all yet, but also worked on seasons eight through 14 of ER and, and did quite a bit of writing on that show. Uh, this episode was directed by Chris Long, who did some Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and was an is an executive producer on The Mentalist. So, I don't know, you know, first impressions, I, I, I like this episode a lot. I mean, it had two really 
uh, diverse storylines going. Neither had really anything to do with the other that I could see. You know, it's just a fun episode. Yeah, it was fun, but uh, there was also some those dark undertones, though, as well, you know. Like, it wasn't just a straight-up laugher, you know. Yeah, no, no, like, what are you talking about? Well, um, I don't know, the girl killing her dad? God, well, yeah, I mean, obviously that's dark. Um, <laughs> you know, you know the thing with Logan, uh, you know, even the scene where he gives her the gun and, and is kind of surprised that uh, she won't right? take it, yeah, and she, she like, even makes the comment about, lefty liberal or whatever that uh, didn't expect you to want to grease the bad guy. <laughs> and, you know, she's kind of surprised, but I was surprised too that he wanted to give her a gun. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I, I think it just kind of buys into the whole thing that we've been talking about of their burgeoning relationship and his feelings for her. And he's kind of protective of her and probably maybe even feels a little guilty about sending her out there all the time and, you know, so give her the gun and maybe that'll ease his conscience a little bit and make him feel like that she's safe when she doesn't need a gun to be safe. No, she doesn't. Because uh, like we talked about last week, it looks like she's got uh, plenty of trip to fan and was definitely on her game in this episode. Right. But yeah, like, so. like we said before, I mean, they got to take trip to fan off the table. So it's not an issue every week. Yeah. So, all right. Well, anyway, this, the, Episode opens. There's a young woman who's kidnapped off the street, you know, the whole bag over the head, thrown into the backseat of the van, uh, finds herself in this rundown room looking at a video monitor. And then we see she's talking to eyes only. So we're certainly feeling a little better about that. And we learn that they're not really kidnapping her. They're just trying to get her into a situation where they can converse uh, in, in secrecy. Right. And she wants him to look into Nathan Herrero, her journalist father's disappearance two years previous. And, you know, we, I think we knew that that eyes only was or maybe is a journalist. She plays on his sense that he'll do the right thing and he'll want to look into it. And, you know, that even scene where he's watching the video and he backs it up. Will you help me? And, and that's like the scene where Max comes in and sees him doing that. Right, and she totally plays on on his strengths. Now, at this point, I wasn't like really suspecting any ulterior motives on her part. At this point, um, certainly, it's not long where it seems fairly clear that she's kind of like a there, there's something else going on here than meets the eye. But she knows how to play Logan for sure. You know, like yeah, all I want know, is the truth, right? Like that's totally like to get something out of Logan. That's all you guys say, because he is big about just finding out the truth and getting the truth out there, right? Yo, no question. And but I got to tell you, I didn't necessarily see that coming when she goes there and she's you know pulls out the cigarette and lights it. I'm thinking she's just trying to get up her nerve before going up to see her father, and then boom, we've got the explosion and. You know, she's just calm, and then obviously it hits. It hit me anyway. Maybe you picked it up earlier than that. Well, I, I didn't pick it up in that when she lit that cigarette. I was like, "Oh yeah, here it is." She's totally. But I remember before, and I can't remember at what point where I'm like, "Well, you know, in any mystery or drama, she would totally be like a top suspect, right? Like, right. like in Castle, you're starting to watch Castle now, right?" Oh, Castle, yeah. it's always like the very first person that they interview always ends up being the person who did it. So it's kind of like the person you least expect type thing. And so I just, I was just thinking that she wouldn't, 
they're they're kind of certainly making her out to be a suspect. I didn't know whether it was like a double blind where they're getting me to suspect her just so someone else, it can be someone else. But as it turned out, she really was the bad guy. Right. Well, the other cool thing is that, you know, we find out that Nathan Herrero, uh, her father, the journalist, was apparently wanted dead by everybody because he exposed wrong uh, wherever he could find it. And Logan even assumes that he probably is dead, either at the hands of organized crime or the government and, and the politicians. But, you know, that parallel between, you know, what Logan's trying to do and what he was trying to do. And like you said, that all you got to do is a, appeal to his sense of right and wrong and, and you're going to get him on your side. So it was, you know, interesting to see that. But while he's talking to Max, right, Max comes in and sees him watching that footage. And then he hands her that stack of photographs that he says Elena gave him. And then she sees that one of the birthday with just her and her father and the balloon. And it takes her to a flashback at Manticore. And, you know, Wayne, I was, I was thinking that I really love those flashback scenes, but because it's not Jessica Alba or because obviously it's a different actress because of the age, I'm wondering how many we're going to get throughout the course of the series. Yeah, right. Because there is, uh, it, well, it's like the uh, the kid who was playing uh well, uh, the the young Sam and Dean on Supernatural, and the one kid who was playing Sam is now the kid on Under the Dome, but he got too old, Yeah, right? When you get to be 18, well, we met Sam when he was 18, so the kid can't, you can't play him anymore. So he just, he ages himself out of the role. So, but this was only two years, so I think we're safe. Yeah. Now, you know, Max flashes back to a field exercise during which one of the kids sees a red balloon up in a tree and 99 red yeah. balloons <laughs> Climb, in the no i think it was blue what no it's red i know oh okay you wouldn't sing blue balloon yeah uh anyway oh it was goes black up. and white right wasn't it in, in <laughs> the flash right. retrieves the balloon well, too late you already said red so and and then the adult leader comes in and starts you know, yelling at him. And then all of a sudden, one of the boys kicks the adult leader, right? Who ordered yeah. w ordered them to lose the contraband. And then it looked like uh, Leidegger was like watching off to the side. And I almost wondered why he didn't reprimand that young boy. But maybe he was impressed yeah, by what he did. a little bit of spunk there. Yeah, yeah So when they went to the flashback, I thought that the the father that she was looking at the father and that somehow that would flash some memory so i'm like oh how did this guy meet max and it's like it's about the freaking balloon seriously <laughs> yeah yeah but as it turns out it's not about that it, right. it's and, and whether she subconsciously thought that but it, it but it's about you know again search for who she is and in this episode it happens to be centered around the whole concept of a birthday you know logan asks her about it and she says she doesn't know Right, right. And we find out a couple of things about Logan, like when his birthday is. Yeah. Which is actually the day after mine. But also, November 11th is Armistice Day, right? Yes. Well, what was now Veterans Day. Is that, you know, did, they, did they do that on purpose? Did they purposely make you know, Veterans Day, which was formerly Armistice Day, the, the day that ended World War I, um, did, you know, did they do that on purpose? Or is like James Cameron's birthday, November 11th, you know? Is it? I don't know. Oh, I didn't okay. look it up. Well, regardless, he tells her that she should pick a birth date then. And he, and he says, and, and I thought it was pretty poignant, 
in this short, brutal life, you have to pick any opportunity to celebrate. Like you've mentioned several times, even, you know, and certainly at least once tonight that he's got feelings for her. He cares about her. And, you know, I I think the whole idea of being able to celebrate yourself is embodied in having a birth date. and, and, And it's something that she should have. And it's interesting when we get to the end of the episode, what she decides, which I thought was just classic. I think it also points to when she looks at that picture and she comes back to that picture a couple of times, it's that wistfulness. Like she sees what was like Alina. Is that the girl's name? Yeah. She had a childhood, yeah. right? That Max right. never had a childhood. She never got balloons or presents or cake or just got the, you know, play like she was being trained as some killing machine from I we assume from her earliest moments. And so she had I think she feels a little bit of jealousy there. Well just that scene when when they're on that exercise and they get the balloon and there's like four or five of them standing around it and they're like looking at it as if they they don't know what it is. And that and that it's just so fascinating to them, and, and that obviously we know it is the embodiment of childhood and carefree uh, life, which is you know exactly what they do not have, as you said. Yeah. You know, the main story in this episode is centers around Logan and Max searching for information about Nathan Herrero, and you know even that Max does throw in that one little thing about you know well you know not to not to press you or anything, but uh, anything about my story. And there's really not any progress on that front. Logan meets with his detective contact who hasn't been able to find out any information, mentions that there's a new police commissioner about to take office. And one of the things we learn in this episode, I think we, we kind of knew it all along from Walter, but the, the whole uh, crooked element from the police force uh, of the policeman on the street to the police commissioner to the politician, everybody's crooked. Yeah. You know, and is this a byproduct of, you know, the the whole system coming down? Because we did get a little look outside of Chinatown, which is what, we're, you know, most of the time where we see Max. And, you know, this just, look, just looks normal. I mean, where, where Nathan Herrero has his apartment, I mean, you know, the street looks clean. I mean, you know, obviously people have, you know, the amenities. It's not as if people don't have electricity internet, television, things, because clearly they do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's uh, Logan's uh, able to do all his stuff, right? So, Right, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think in this episode, we do get a sense of that because up to this point, we really, you know, we've seen checkpoints going in and out of the city. And then, like we said, Chinatown. Uh, Logan gives this guy a Game Boy. I guess it was a Game Boy. You would know better than I do. Is that what it was? Um, I, uh, some kind of little handheld yeah, I don't, was it, gaming I think, yeah, device. Yeah, it was a Game Boy, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Right. And he's reluctant to take it because he feels that it would make him dishonest. And Logan said, hey, I'm not giving it to you. I'm giving it to your son, which is kind of a sneaky way around it. But as the guy says, he goes, well, at least taking it from you, I can still look myself in the mirror in the morning because I at least know you're one of the good guys. Right, so. which shows that you know his cop buddy probably has some sketchy things going, but for the most part, seems like a pretty honest dude. Yeah. Now, I, I like the uh, plan. Max breaks into the municipal records building to seal, uh, steal the sealed Herrero file. And she, you know, st- does the whole stuff the cloth down the sink, turn on the water to create a, 
uh, a moisture problem. Is that, did the guy really say that? Yeah. <laughs> We've got a moisture problem yeah. on four. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's code for, you know, like poo on the floor. Right. Right. Now, you know, she does that. Then she comes out. It's just, I, I don't, you know, I, I tend to look for something where there really is nothing, but she applies whether it's lipstick or chapstick. I mean, what was that all about? I, I, I don't know. You didn't even notice. It's probably it. you know, not even important. <laughs> I'm just um, like, maybe Dave will say, because I don't remember that one bit. <laughs> uh, I don't know anyway. But the guard catches her and, you know, we know, hey, she's at full strength. No no tryptophan problems. Right. Because this was uh, a lot like the failed break-in at the hospital. Exactly. Where we were shocked that she got caught. Right. But now she's got all her spinach. She's at full power. She's all charged. So. And she gets in quite a few little verbal quips as well before diving out of the window and escaping on her motorcycle. Yeah, does she knock the guy out by kicking him in the chest? Uh, I think so. It's like, how does that, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, we uh, find yeah, out. Oh, I just, one thing I just had to say is because my kids like are really into American Ninja Warrior and like this, that hiding in the ceiling, like she would be boss on American Ninja Warrior. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I must say. Well, we find out the police have been investigating Herrero's contract murder, which apparently was paid for by the Beltran administration as payback for taking down one of the mayor's lieutenants. So, again, it just reinforces this whole idea that no one is honest, apparently, in any of the positions of power. And well, the even the non-position of powers, because here's its dumbass sketch taking money and doing you know, sketchy stuff, right, too. Oh, no, yeah. Now, you know, we find out as, as, you know, he reads the file that the housekeeper's the one that reported him missing, and then she she turns up missing two weeks later. So, you know, you were talking about with Castle that it's always the first one they interview. I mean, even I kind of was suspicious of the housekeeper at this point. Right. And uh, Logan immediately thinks she was probably involved, although Max just figures she was probably scared, which turns out to not be true. Uh, now, nope. I mentioned the gun, and Max, I think, you know, she's, again, we don't know how many gifts she's gotten in her life. We assume not very many because the people she's hanging out with don't have an inordinate amount of money, although you would think it looks like she, an original Cindy, we didn't see Kendra in this episode, but they probably give each other little gifts as they can, but but still, this was something from Logan, and then it's a gun. And what we do learn, which I think is pretty significant, which to is me, that I feel that's a very thoughtful gift. I was touched. Well, and she even points that out. She goes, "Not to not to seem ungrateful, but what we learned was that she doesn't do guns." And and um, you know, for in, good in the reason, same sense, well, well, in the same sense that Oliver Queen realizes that, look, even though they're bad guys, I'm going to stop killing them. I will certainly do my best to detain them and turn them over to the proper authorities. That's pretty much, pretty much what she does. So if she may kill them, but she's not going to kill them with a gun. She's going to kill them with kindness. Well, and then now you mentioned uh, Logan and, and, you know, whatever his feelings are for her. I wasn't so sure about the line when, when he, you know, when she tells him that and then says, a genetically engineered killing machine, squeamish about guns. Right. Yeah, that, that's that's a good way to that's, uh, that's, win the girl over. That's not going to impress her, I don't think, very much. Right, right. But then we've got another flashback, and 
you know, I've seen this episode three times now, and I'm pretty sure of what I'm seeing. The kids are all assembled, and one of them just shoots one of the other ones at close range. I mean, did I get that like right? It was being coerced, right? Like the kid yeah. had to, yeah. So, it, so we it, it, see her aversion to, to guns is, you know, probably deeply ingrained. I mean, my God, I mean, it, it, as if we didn't think these uh, children led a, a horrible enough life, then we see this is what they were subjected to as well. And, you know, just wow. Um, yeah, that was messed up. Right. And then, you know, of course, Logan tells her it's a kick or be kicked world out there. Well, OK, but, you know, she's going to do most of the kick assing, I think so. <laughs> the kick assing. Yes. If that's oh, actually okay. we're, we're making it one. Yeah, we're making all right. So anyway, Logan <laughs> finds, you know, the housekeeper's been employed for 18 months. So how did she buy a place on Alexander? Oh, and, and brown chicken, brown cow. That's how yeah. They start to put two and two together and figure that the housekeeper set up the hit on Herrero. Again, <laughs> I love the scene when he says, uh, can you do something for me? And he opens up the little case and she, uh, oh, you know, immediately recognizes like the model number, exactly what they are. Uh, I excelled at telecommunications as a child, which we assume was at Manticore. I really like these kind of spyish scenes that we see, you know, with her rappelling down the side of the building as she's placing the different bugs. You know, while she's doing it, she sees the housekeeper and Herrero drinking wine, yeah. embracing. Yeah. And she and she realizes he's still alive. Still alive. And in the same city. Like, this guy's wanted by basically everybody and so it's been like, what, eight eight years, right? Seven years, seven years, well, eight years? Well, uh, right. Well, the other thing is, look, when he meets uh, Logan at that library. Yeah. Right? There's some other dude just sitting there perusing books, right? Yeah. Hiding in plain sight, I guess. You know, like, I yeah. just, like, no one's going to expect this. I'm just walking around. No one's going to think that. It's crazy. Yeah. So, I, look, dare I say, he, slightly unrealistic. Well, he fell in love. Didn't want to die. Didn't think his daughter would miss him. So he just disappeared himself. Yeah, like, but, you know, moved to another city. Yeah, you would think. And, and you know, Logan even questions, though, his walking away from the fight against the crooked government. And, you know, I guess I'm, uh, you know, who is Logan to preach? Well, I mean, I, he's I exactly, he's very preachy and sanctimonious, isn't he? Yeah, and he hides behind his uh, electronic equipment. So right. now, now, granted, he did take a bullet and, you know, he did put himself out there. So I guess I shouldn't be too hard on him. No, but yeah, he is. And he's, it's like the same thing he has with Max, where he feels frustrated with her because he wants her to get in the game and get out there. And he's just the type of person who's like, kind of like Jiminy Cricket, right? He's like this little conscience. And that can be annoying because the person tells you the right thing to do. You don't always want to do the right thing. And when someone insists that you do the right thing, that can get annoying. Yeah. Um, well, and then Max tells him that she even understands Herrero's choice. And then Logan shoots back, figures you'd side with someone turning their back on responsibility. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, well, you know, he, like, I, like I said, he, he's kind of associated Max with Herrero both. Because he, he sees them both as people who are unwilling to do what needs to be done. And in a way, I see his frustration because he's fighting a losing battle here, right? I mean, he's against this police state, this government that we we haven't really seen that much. But certainly we've seen some elements like Manticore and, and then uh, the checkpoints that there is a pretty um, encompassing 
police presence and military presence, and he's trying to combat the corruption where we just, as you said, corruption's everywhere. And so he feels he needs every soldier he can get on the ground, and he's got people leaving the team to go shack up with their housekeeper. You're right, but I thought I also thought that was kind of a dig at Max, and I'm thinking, oh like, yeah, well, no question, you're right, but, right, but what and what is she? You know what responsibility is she shirking? I mean, I don't really see any. Well, it's just he's he's had to like convince her to get involved, right? I think yeah, it just might be what he's referring to. Yeah, I guess so. Um, well, Max tracks down Elena, tells her about her father, and then you know that that conversation where she's uh, obviously in retrospect, we know she's playing Max. Well, if you were me, would you see him? And Max has that momentary flashback to the balloon rising, and and she says, in a heartbeat. I would, because obviously we sh- we know that she's searching for her own mother at this point. So right, and again, um, it's it's that childhood denied, right? Right. Now, obviously, Logan feels as if he killed Herrero. Yeah, I mean, I get it, but there was no reason to not trust her. I don't know. He's, you know, Max tells him that she understands as well that that the girl did seem so emotional. You know why? Did someone suspect that he might actually still be alive? Not to be outdone, goes to Elena's apartment, finds the train schedule, tracks her down. And, you know, we see her pick up that briefcase from a locker trope. Yes, definitely. Uh, Right. How much did Lance pay you to give up your father? And and then that reality, it's like, so so what was this all about? Just, you know, mad at daddy for abandoning her so she's going to have him killed? Yeah, I guess. I, I guess. Yeah, because, right, we, uh, at first, with the cigarette and everything, we think, well, you know, maybe she's actually working for the mob or something like that, but apparently just straight up did it for the money. Yeah. That's messed I up. Yes. Um, then the final deliveries to Logan, there's a disc from Herrero who's, you know, done one of these things, you know, in the event of my death, this will, you know, be mailed to you. And it's the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Oh, oh, I, I know who said that. Like I didn't even have to look it up. I totally knew this one. Okay, is Edmund Burke ah. said that he was uh, an Irish philosopher and um, actually read about because he uh, I can't remember what it was, but a, a, like a big essay denouncing the revolution in France. And so, but this is like one of his most famous quotes. And uh, yeah, I oh, like it. It worked it's a good perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, this disc proves that Land, who's the guy running for uh, police commissioner now, was responsible for the death of a Seattle district attorney, and Logan is intent on not allowing him to steal this election. So we'll see if that's you know part of the storyline in an upcoming episode. But the other sideline story is the one that has to do with Sketch, who's apparently working for some Russian mobsters and showing off for a girl— loses $15,000 of their money. Right. Well, it's it's funny. You know, that's a lot. I like the comedy element there where uh, he and the original Cindy are like kind of in competition for the girl. You know, it's like, um, that was just, that was really funny how they did that. Yeah, but I'm, t- I'm starting, his humor is starting to wear thin oh, he's, he's a complete douche. Yeah. And his excuse, I'm a young capitalist in a failing economy. <laughs> I saw an opportunity. Yeah, and then he's thinking like, well, the Odessa Club, uh, uh, Odessa Social Club, is a gambling operation, and I, I assume it's illegal, but nothing would surprise me. So maybe it's legal, but whatever. There, uh, it didn't seem like that was legal. 
it, no, it didn't because he got the guy. You got to know the secret right. knock and yeah, all exactly. that. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's he's just a just an overall tool, and uh, but he's still demanding making demands of Max. It's like, listen, hasn't she done enough for you? Like she totally got this girl who was like fail attractioning you and held her by her ankles outside of a balcony. Yeah. You know, like what but, more do you want? Like she has, she owes you nothing. Well, you know, I forgot about that. So how apropos is it how original Cindy and Max find him right. chained, yeah. hanging upside down and naked. Right. With 36 hours to come up with the money. So, again, like you said, at what point is Max just going to tell him to F off and sort it out on your own? But I guess she understands what an idiot he is. Um, Yeah, and and she realizes if she doesn't help out, he's going to get killed. So even though he's an idiot, he's still her friend. So she's going to help him out, though she at some point she's just going to have to cut the strings on this guy, right? Because he's just he makes demands on her and makes demands on her and, and has not shy about his inability to handle things himself. Like he yeah. has to get her to bail him out all the time. Yep. Well, only three hours to go. Max and original Cindy come in dressed like hookers, take a hundred dollars from Sketch and head to the club to try to win enough for Sketch to pay back the mobsters. And you know w- the other thing we learn about Max. Again, here, I guess, are her powers, uh, intense powers of observation, in addition to be able to read the beeps of that keypad or touchtone phone a couple episodes ago. She can look at the roulette wheel and determine that it's rotating at 3.2 revolutions a second. The rest is physics. And, okay, so they make $3,000 playing roulette in a couple hours, but they've only got an hour to go. Um now, look, obviously, we've seen enough of these casino movies to know that they're watching the big winners. Sure. And they're looking for any cheating. But again, I guess it's no different than card counting. But anyway, they notice her well, uncanny it's, success. Yeah, it's, it's funny because you never really watched the Almighty Johnsons, right? Well, just the pilot. Okay, because... Um, I can't remember which episode it was, but in the one, the oldest brother, Mike, who's like the god of games. So whatever game he plays, he wins no matter what. Um, but he refuses to use his power. But he gets into a situation where he's so strapped for cash, he goes to a casino and he just wins and wins and wins. And, and obviously they say, get the hell out of here, right? They're like, what, you know, they're like, say, how are you doing it? It's like, I'm not cheating. Like, well, bullshit, you're not cheating, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's like the same thing here. You just always feel like you need to diversify a little bit here, maybe lose every once in a while, and then, like, you know, win, like, win big, and, you know, you got to keep playing. You can't just keep putting down money and winning every time. It's suspicious. When they switched over to the game where you take your clothes off when you lose, yeah. it looked like they were losing there for a while. Right, and, but that is just and, for the audience. Right, and then... They, it, it becomes their deal. Max asks for a new deck. We learn that she can instantly memorize the card order. Right. And with the biggest pot of the evening, Max's straight flush beats a full house. They leave immediately, but obviously the monsters don't like losing that much money. <laughs> and again, you don't play so well with others, one of them tells Max. Well, she was yeah, homeschooled. I, yeah, I was homeschooled. Well, it's funny how, like, also, like, Cindy is kind of involved with her own thing, so she doesn't see Max 
like, you know, beating the tar out of these guys. Well, you know, that's my question. I mean, she doesn't know about Max's past, yet she seems pretty confident that they're going to be able to physically take down right. these guys. Now, she holds her own, Cindy, that is, but, you know, I, I, I was just a little surprised by I, that. I just think she's just, in general, a person with no lack of confidence, right? Like she, Right. And then the final, this is arguably the worst line I've ever heard. I don't think so. Your parents must have been terrorists because you guys are the bomb. Oh, yeah, that was bad. I thought, sketch, I thought you were going to say the one where Cindy says she's straight out of Compton. Uh, no, that was, you know, actually that was downright Shakespearean compared to this one. Yeah. You know, you know what straight out of Compton is, right? I do. Okay. Do you know they're making an NWA biopic? Uh, I didn't. Yeah, it's gonna, I can't wait. It's going to be but, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that also came out, uh, you know, like we said, we learned a few things about Max and her abilities. We learned a little bit more about her past. Um, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, this whole idea of this police presence that from the commissioner on down, the police are crooked. They're heavily armed, patrolling the streets. We, we see, I don't know if we'd seen those hovercrafts before. I think we did in the pilot. Okay. But that was still, uh, I, I know something, that was pretty nice special effects for 2001, you know, for television. Yeah. That, yeah. that was really good. Right. And then we hear about police death squads. So, you know, this is a dark, dark time, at least in this area, that's for sure. Now, it was good to see Logan using a Mac G3 laptop. Took me back many years. <laughs> uh, I got, I still got one in the closet that actually still works, believe nice. it or not. The idea about her birthday, which comes up at the end, and and I think this was the voiceover, right? I think this is when she's up on the Space Needle, and she says she decided on a birthday. She was born yesterday. And I'm wondering why she chose that idiom. You know, the whole idea of being born, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. Uh, I mean, she's anything but naive. Right, but I... I think it's kind of like not necessarily the meaning of that in the traditional meaning of the idiom, but more along the lines of she is just kind of reborn, like this whole thing with Logan, everything she's doing now, which is helping other people rather than just worrying about herself. She's kind of like a new person. It's like right. how I took it. Right. And, and that she is naive in how to go about doing things like that. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, good episode. Yeah. I liked it a oh, lot. It was awesome. For sure. yeah. It was fun. You know, I'm wondering where we're going to head here. I mean, you know, I mentioned my uh, displeasure with uh, Sketch, and, and I'm wondering if his stories are setting something up that Max is going to really have to bail him out, and it's going to lead to some sort of explosion down the road. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be a, wouldn't wouldn't be disappointed to just see him go. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no question that she's going to have to bail him out of something really big because they are building up, right? Uh, yeah. Before is like the girlfriend. Now it's with the mob. So it's just increasing um, what she's going to have to do. And so, but yeah, it, it might turn out to be with sketches, horrific and demise that would, uh, would not be unfulfilling. Oh, anyway, that's all I got. You got anything else you want to say about this one? No, no. It's a good episode. Just, yeah. you know, not much Leidiger there, though. Uh, no, just, just the just one where the balloon, we... Just comes in that shows he's a big meanie, right? Yeah, that's about it. So, so we'll see. Well, listen, 
We're glad you could join us tonight. And if you'd like to send some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Emails to fatalistpodcast at gmail.com or voicemails via SpeakPipe, which you can access through the Fatalist website. We'll be back next week to talk about Dark Angel Episode 6, titled 411 on the DL. So, until next time. Well, no flowing pieces of corn, which is good news. <laughs>